All right, let's pray and dig into the Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. You are indeed a great and an awesome God. We ask as we go to your Word right now that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to each and every one of us. Lord, I thank you for everyone who's here, none by chance, all by divine appointment. Lord, may you paint eternity on our eyes. May we be focused on winning people and reaching people for the kingdom of God and for your glory. And Lord, we want to live every day longing to hear those seven words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So Lord, be our teacher tonight. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. Welcome back, Penny. We missed you. How was Uganda? Wonderful. It's good to have you back. All right, so we've been two weeks away from Chronicles. So uh, one week I was teaching a men's retreat, so I ended up teaching out of Titus, and then last week I was sick. So I'm going to take a moment, again, just to catch us up on Chronicles and the context of Chronicles in the Bible. Uh, con- I will say this, Chronicles is a book a lot of people skip over, especially the first nine chapters, uh, because it's all genealogies. And what I, tell, I say often is that every chapter in the Bible points to Jesus. And we saw it in the first part of Chronicles. But uh, Chronicles was not originally divided into two books. It was one book. And when people, again, find out, uh, like most Calvary Chapel pastors, I teach expositionally. Here's what I often hear. But you, but you don't teach through Leviticus and Chronicles, right? <laughs> yeah, we do. Because, guys, if it's in the Bible, it's in there for a reason. Amen? And if God, if God wrote it down, inspired by the Holy Spirit through men, and He protected it, and He's delivered it to us, how dare we not? spend time understanding what it means and how to apply it to our lives. Because nothing less than a whole Bible makes a whole Christian. And we want to be faithful to study the whole counsel of God. And so the first nine chapters, as we talked about, uh, genealogies, you might wonder why it's in there. And if you were here for chapter, chapters one through four that we looked at all in one evening, we saw clearly that God started off in the genealogy in the most general sense with Adam, some of them were all related to. And then he went through the line of Seth, not Cain or Abel, but through Seth. And why is that? Because that's the line of Jesus. And then we saw that line go all the way down through Noah. And then we saw the lines of Noah set apart. And then the line of Noah went to Shem, which is through whom Jesus would come. And so the focus of Chronicles compared to First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel, those are things that took place before they were taken into exile in Babylon. And Chronicles is chronicling what happens after Babylon. So they've been in in captivity for 70 years. During that time, many of these people who are now going to be going back to Jerusalem have never been there. And they don't really know their history in a way that they maybe should. And so what is Chronicles doing? It's reminding them. It's getting them the perspective of, again, the line through whom Jesus would come, but how they came to the line that they were living in today. And as we finished up, and let me just quickly share with you what I shared uh, the last time. And again, we saw both wicked people and godly people in the genealogy. The Word of God does not hide the frailties of its heroes, nor is there any line in Scripture where you don't have flawed people. And the reason is because people are flawed. Amen? And we saw that clearly. And I tell the message uh, last time, God is not done with Israel. And you can, you can find that on our website. But even after all their flesh-driven failures and open rebellion, we saw that God still had a plan for Israel. And by the way, God's still not done with Israel. Amen? And I'm pro-Israel because God's pro-Israel. And he says he blesses those who bless Israel and curses those who curse Israel. And God's not done with them. Now, that being said, the Jewish people, not, not individually, but as a whole, have blinders on their eyes. And they have missed the Messiah. I just had a Jewish man call me the other day. He was actually calling for my son, Mark, who most of you know, went to heaven six months ago. And people will call for his business, and I have his business phone, and I will answer it, and I will let them know. And this man was really shook. He said, you know, I I used Mark 10 or 11 times, and man, I love that kid. And he always told me that I should hang out with his dad. So I guess that's you. I said, yeah. He said, let's get lunch. I said, I'd love to. He goes, but I'm going to tell you up front, I'm Jewish. I said, well, praise God, because I teach a Jewish book about a, Jesus, a Jewish Savior, so you and I got to get along just fine, amen? And so the reality is that God's not done with Israel, and, and when, you, know, you might think if you were the children of Israel in those days, you've been, your, your land's been ripped away from you. It's now being lived in by people who've taken you captive, 
And now you've been living in this faraway land and you've been assimilating into their culture and the culture of, of the Jews has been taken away. And for many of them, they've never experienced it. It's been forgotten, but God was not done with them. And I want to encourage all of us, no matter what you've been through, God's not done with you either. Amen. God still has a calling and a gifting and a plan for your life, and God wants to use you for his kingdom and for his glory. The five things we saw last time was that God's not done with Israel, that the sovereign and gracious hand of God is, came from the very beginning. See, God always knew whatever trial you're going through today is not surprising to God. Whatever that difficulty may be, what's going on in our world today, what's going on in our country today, God's not surprised by any of it. And the good news is God knew it was coming and God is still in control and God allows us to be here to be salt and light in the midst of it. Amen? So God is in control. We also saw that there's hope for those who have rebelled. Again, I did prison ministry for years and I would have guys say to me often, but pastor, you don't know all the things I've done. And I'd say, you're right, I don't, but God does, and God will forgive you. Again, there's not so much sin that you cannot be forgiven. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Amen? There's no one so good they don't need to be saved, and there's someone no bad that they can't be saved. Then thirdly, we saw that God separates our sin as far as the east is from the west. I'm so thankful for that. You know, when you're reminded of past sin that you've asked for forgiveness for, that's not the Lord, that's the enemy. The enemy wants to condemn you. He wants to remind you of the past struggles you've had. The Lord is separated as far as the east is from the west. And then we even saw, even in the midst of great sin and rebellion, there's always, and there are always faithful men of God. We saw the prayer of Jabez. And I encourage you, if you were not here, to read uh, chapter 4 of 1 Chronicles. And toward the end of the chapter there, starting in verse 10, you see the prayer of Jabez. And the prayer of Jabez is very simple. He asks God to bless him as he serves him. He prays that God will grow the ministry he's called to. He asks that the hand of God would be upon him, and he prays and asks God to keep him from evil. Boy, that's something we could all pray every day. Let me say that again. He, said, he asks God to bless him as he faithfully serves. Lord, as I'm serving you, would you bless this? For your glory, not mine, but that you would be glorified. Lord, make this a fruitful work. Secondly, he prays that God would grow the ministry. Now look, we don't want to grow ministry just so we have a big ministry. We want to grow the ministry because we want to see people saved. Amen? It doesn't matter. Again, if God wants us to minister to five people for the next five, you know, 50 years, that's great. I'm all for it. And that's a privilege. But at the same time, we want to see the kingdom of God being added to. Then he asks God, the hand of God would be upon him. Guys, without him, we can do nothing. And in original language, that word means nothing. So we can't do anything, nothing, absolutely zero apart from the power of God. So we need to be humble, broken, and desperate. We need to be filled with the spirit of the living God that we might be used for him and for his glory. And then he prays and asks God to keep him from evil. How many of you guys struggle with evil? How many of you guys struggle with your flesh every day? I told you that every morning I get up in the mirror, I look in the, and I see the enemy. Amen. Dude, you got to die today. If God's going to be glorified, we need to die to ourselves. So that was the first four chapters, and we're going to really spend, we're going to look at four more chapters tonight, Lord willing, but we're going to spend most of our time in the first two chapters uh, because of the content that is there. If you have your outline, grab it, titled, May We Not Miss Out on God's Highest. And so we're going to see, as we go through the genealogy, we're going to be reminded of some of the tribes and some of the things that they have done. And in those reminders, we're going to see areas of compromise, and we're going to see areas of faith. And we're going to see consequences that took place because of choices that were made. And it's going to be a reminder to all of us. First of all, we see that compromise is the enemy of calling. When God calls you to do something, when we compromise that, when we water it down, or when we delay it, it's the enemy of the calling that God has placed upon our lives. We're going to see that in three tribes in chapter 5. There's more listed there, but we're really going to look at Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. And we're going to see that this two and a half tribes, what they did is when they got to the land of promise and they were about to enter in, God had given them victory over all the enemies just outside the border of the land of promise. So here's what these two and a half tribes decide to do. You know what? I think we'll just stay here. I know there's more giants in there. We got rid of the giants out here. So let's just stay out here. I mean, we're almost in the land of promise. We're almost doing God's highest. Let's just be happy, you know, be with saved souls and wasted lives in a sense, right? Let's just be happy camping outside of God's will. So you want to stay where it's easy. You want to stay where, you know, you have the least amount of conflict. And we're going to see that God is encouraging us to not allow comfort 
to, to overrule our calling that he's placed upon our lives. Temporary comfort often keeps us from God's highest, and even in compromise, we're going to see that they're going to camp outside thinking they're going to be free from all the battles. Will you guys go in and fight the giants? We're here if you need us, but hey, the grass is green over here, and we've got beautiful herds over here, and we just as soon settle down and retire on the outside, and you guys go keep fighting that battle that spiritual battle and that physical battle that's taking place. And they're going to think by, by doing that, they're going to escape the battle. But guess what? We'll see in tonight's chapter, that's not what happens. Because again, Christianity is not a cruise ship to heaven. It's a battleship anchored at the gates of hell. And every day we fight a spiritual battle. Amen? And we don't want to miss out on God's highest. We'll also see in chapter 6 that we are all uniquely gifted. We're going to look at the tribe of the Levites. We know the Levites are the tribe that God called uniquely. And one of the reasons they were called so uniquely is that when the Lord came down, remember, you remember when they were, they were trying to uh, overthrow Moses and there was a time when, you know, he said, everyone who's on the Lord's side, come here. And there was one tribe where everybody came and it was the Levites. There was other tribes or parts of other tribes that didn't come and God swallowed people up and God brought righteous judgment upon them. And so the Levites, from that point forward, became a special and chosen tribe that is used mightily by God. Now, they did not even have any land within the land of promise. They did not have, everybody, other tribe, you see they have land. Levites don't have it. God used the Levites and spread them out throughout the land to be salt and light to all of the people of all of the tribes. So the Levites were uniquely called and gifted. And we're going to see tonight that through Levi, there were three separate descendants, and each of them had a different calling on their lives. And the only way that the Levites could function properly is if everybody was faithful to the calling God had placed upon their lives. The only way the kingdom of God functions at its highest is when all of us are using our gifts. Amen? So if someone has a gift, praise God for the people who set up the chairs. Can I get an amen to that? Praise God for the people who set up and do the, you know, the live stream. I found out when I was up in Santa Cruz two weeks ago, I went by at the end, because I did a men's retreat, and I went by at the end of the service to one of the churches we planted there, and a bunch of people came out and were talking to me, and they're like, you know, we watch that live stream every week, and oh, my sister in, you know, Utah, and my friend in Nebraska, and my friend over here. I'm like, well, praise the Lord, amen? But somebody comes early and sets it all up, and praise God for that. You know, on every gift, the people that are serving our children right now, some of us have our kids down there, and they're taking care of our kids, and they're teaching our kids the word, so we can be up here studying on our own. Amen? Praise God for the people that lead us into worship. We're going to see that in chapter 6 as well, that God sets people aside to lead us into God's presence. So chapter 6, we're all uniquely gifted for the body of Christ to function at God's highest. We must all use our gifts. Chapter 7 and 8, there's not, there's really just almost like straight genealogies with very other comment. But we'll, we'll look at that fairly quickly, but we're going to see two things. I think in chapter 7, the pride goes with destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The Ephraimites, who are listed there, were famous for wealth and power and prowess. But they were also noted for being proud and insolent and quarrelsome. And it's, it's interesting, it doesn't always have to happen this way, but often people who have a lot of power and have a lot of wealth, let it go to their head. And if they're not careful, they lose sight of the fact that without the Lord, we can have nothing. Again, that God gives us anything. God alone should be the one that we praise and honor and pride truly does go before destruction. And then finally, May we be mighty men and women of valor. We're going to see the Benjamites. The Benjamites, uh, their, their most famous descendant, not so good in some ways, King Saul. Okay, now the Benjamites were known for being mighty warriors and men of valor. They were known to be great with, with archery and swords. They were known to be great warriors. And they were men and women of valor to some extent. At the same time, we saw when the real battle came, King Saul even though he was willing to fight battles early on, and he won battles early on, that he quickly became a man who ceased to rest in the Lord. Remember what he did? He was supposed to wait for the high priest to make sacrifice before they went into battle, but the army kept getting bigger, so he went and made the sacrifice himself. He took the place of the high priest, if you will, and he was not supposed to do that. You know why? Because he was more concerned with the physical battle than trusting in God. And we, need, we must not fall into that trap. Just because we may have a strength in a certain area, we must never cease to be humble, broken, and desperate before Almighty God. Amen? So I've told you what I'm going to tell you, now I'm going to tell you. 
then at the end I'll tell you what I told you. Amen? Because that's the way that we remember. So let's begin there in 1 Chronicles chapter 5. May we not miss out on God's highest. And we're first going to look at these eastern tribes. Look what it says in verse 1. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he indeed was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to his birthright. So here's how it happened. Here's, a, here's the, the Jewish law, if you will. When the father gave out the birthright, the oldest son got a double portion. And then the rest of the children divided the rest. So the person who was the oldest was in a special place of blessing. Now we know that Reuben is the oldest, but since we read four chapters of genealogy already, and a lot of what of the tribes of Israel, why is Reuben not listed first? Well, because Reuben, it says there, he defiled himself. What did he do? He defiled his father's bed. He slept with one of his father's wives. There's so many wrong statements in that sentence. We could sit there for an hour. One of his father's wives. That's a problem. Amen. You're supposed to have one woman. Amen. One man with one woman. And he sleeps with one of his stepmoms or a concubine. And so, so because of that, God takes away his birthright. And it's not given to him, but it's given to Joseph. Now, remember, Joseph was the faithful one. Joseph was the one that when he was, you know, thrown into captivity, he could have mocked God and stood, he stood for God. He was faithfully serving in Potiphar's house. If you remember that Potiphar gave him free reign of his household. And then what happened? Potiphar's wife, who saw young, young Joseph, young studly Joseph. And she, what did she do? Her husband was away and she tried to grab him and pull, her, pull him into her bed. And what did he do? He, he left his coat behind and ran. Amen. That's a good word for every man on the planet. Amen? And he left his coat behind and ran. And what happened? He was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. Then he was thrown into prison. What did he do in prison? Did he mock God and murmur God? No. He stood for God. And he interpreted the dreams of the baker and the, and, you know, the wine taster. Right? And he, he gave their, their interpretations to their dreams. And when, it, when, the prince, when the king found out, he brought him in and made him basically his prince, second in all of reign. So here's a faithful man of God. And here's a man who defiled his mother's, his mother's bed, his father's bed with one of his stepmoms. Now, is it surprising that this one gets the double portion of blessing and this one does not? Guys, when we're obedient, God is glorified and we get blessed. Amen? And I'm not talking about stuff because stuff is, it's all going to burn and it's not that big a deal. If you think blessing equates to just having, you know, more money in your bank account, you're going to need it all for gasoline anyway. But, <laughs> but the reality is that more money in your bank account means nothing. What's really important is having an impact on eternity. Amen? And see, Joseph was faithful in prison, so he got to become prince. And Reuben was unfaithful as the firstborn, and his blessing has been taken. His birthright is taken away from him. So Reuben is, is seen there, and again, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, as we continue to move through these, are the tribes that chose to remain outside the land of promise. They took the easy way out. They said, you know what, let's just stay here. It's easier here. You know, it's like, I don't know, going to Texas right about now. Let's take the easy way out. I'm just kidding. I know about 10 of you are looking at houses in Texas. Be moved by the Holy Spirit, not by Zillow. Amen. So the land east of the land of promise had to be rid of all their enemies and often settling for less than God's highest will appear to be the easier path. But you know, they missed out on the land flowing with milk and honey. And it's always better to obey God's commands. Because here's the reality. Obeying God's commands isn't always easy, but it's always worth it. Amen. So here's the Reubenites. He had disobeyed God beforehand. Is this a shocker that his descendants are doing the same thing? Is it a shocker that a man who would sleep with his, one of his father's wives now has his descendants who say, you guys going to land of promise? You know what? The battle's been won out here. We'll just hang out out here. We don't need to go into that land. And, and again, it's a sign of this, the tragic events that take place when you compromise in your walk with God. He didn't obey God's commands, and now his, his descendants are content outside of God's will, and his fleshly desires cost him the firstborn's inheritance because sin has consequences. You know, the Bible says to obey. What's that? Again, again we can talk about that after service, okay, Amy? 
And God, God is a faithful God and we trust him. We don't put our faith in anybody but the Lord. Let's, let's trust the Lord. The compromise is the enemy of calling. And so Reuben's birthright is lost to sin, fleshly desires, and compromise. His tribe, comprom his tribe compromised settling outside. And then look what it says. It says the birthright again was given to Joseph. So because Joseph was faithful, God blessed him even more. If you look at the parable of the talents, remember that one person had one talent, they buried it in the sand. The one that had five turned it into 10. The one that had two turned it into four. And when the master came back, he took the one that was buried in the sand and gave it to the one that already had 10. Why? Because God wants to use those who are available and faithful to be used for the kingdom of God. It says in Chronicles, the eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole earth. Seeking one, he can show himself strong on account of one whose heart is loyal to him. See, he's not looking for a better method. He's just looking for men and women who will say, I'm here. Lord, use me. I'm available. Wake up in the morning. Lord, use me today. Give me a divine appointment today. Give me a chance to share my faith today. Lord, I, I know that I'm not as equipped as I would hope to be, but give me a deeper hunger for your word and prepare me to be used for your kingdom and your glory. See, one of the many things I love about Joseph is Joseph, in the midst of all of it, could have complained and been mad at God, but he wasn't because he had an eternal perspective. And when we complain and we're mad at God, we've lost sight of who God is. We've lost sight of the character of God. He's a gracious God, a loving God, and a merciful God. Verse 2, yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the ruler. Also, the birthright was Joseph's. So not only did Reuben lose his birthright, it was also would have been through his line that the Messiah would have come. But because of his disobedience, the, the birthright was given to Joseph, and now the line through which the Messiah would come is going to come through Judah. Now, again, can you think of anything that you could lose more valuable than being doubly blessed by God and having through your line come the Messiah? And sadly, because of his faithlessness, because of his disobedience, through that line, through the line of Judah would come King David, and then through David would come Jesus. And again, when we're obedient, God is glorified, and we get blessed. Now, it's going to tell us who the sons of family of Reuben are. Let's read through these quickly. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, Carmi. The sons of Joel were Shemei, his son, Gog, his son, Shemei, his son, Micah, his son, Reiah, his son, Baal, his son. By the way, if you're naming your son Baal, where have you been? Baal is the, the worship, you know, the false god of Jezebel. Baal is the one who we know uh, Elijah had that battle with on Mount Carmel. And if you're naming your son Baal, that's not good. Amen? Don't name your son Lucifer. No one's done that, hopefully. Amen? And so, Baal. Uh, Bury his son, who was Turgath Pileser, king of Assyria, carried into captivity. He was a member of the Reubenites. And his brethren, by their families, with the genealogy of their generations, registered Chief Jalil, Zechariah, we know he was a godly king, Bela, the son of Azaz, his son Shimi, the son of Joel, who dwelt with Aurora as far as Nebo and Baal Maon. Eastward, they, here, here it is. Eastward, they settled as far as the entrance of the wilderness, this side of the river Euphrates, because their cattle had multiplied in the land and in the land of Gilead. So why did they why did they stay outside of God's highest? Because they got rich. They stayed outside of God's highest because their cattle was growing. Uh, they were becoming very prosperous. Uh, all the enemies been wiped out on this side. So let's just stay on this side and let, let our animals graze, let it continue to multiply, and let us get away from that battle we don't need to be a part of anymore. And there's nothing the enemy wants more from us is that we would be so content with the world that we would cease to be, you know, in the Lord's army, if you will. I mean, those little kids songs are great. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Amen. And we need to be in the Lord's army. And we need to recognize this is a battle that we fight every day. And too often we can listen to the world and have one goal in life. Let me be comfortable. We don't want to be comfortable. We want to be usable for the kingdom of God. And he said, because they had been so blessed, they kind of became complacent. And they decided not to enter, cross over the river Euphrates, to try over the Jordan, to go into the land of promise, to fight the battle that was waiting on the other side. They were satisfied with a saved soul and a wasted life and missing out 
on God's highest. It says, so again, because their cattle had been multiplied, we need to be careful not to stay where it's easy, where it's comfortable and free of conflict. It's easier to avoid the battles. And again, Christianity is not a a cruise ship at a battleship anchored at the gates of hell. Often temporary blessings will keep us from God's highest. Sometimes that promotion at work is something the enemy will use to make you so comfortable financially that your prayer life isn't as desperate as it used to be. That you're not crying out to the Lord the way that you used to. And we, can, we need to be in a position where we stay humble and broken and desperate. May we not fall into that trap. You know, we live in a, here's the reality, because we live where we live, Everybody here, we're in the, you know, richest, highest percentage in the world, you know, because, you know, if you have a a house to go home to sleep in tonight and food in your refrigerator and a little bit of money in your bank account, you're richer than most people on this planet who don't know what they're going to eat tomorrow, go to third world country. And so we can become so complacent. You know, when I've gone to India or I've gone to, you know, remote parts of Russia or different places where you, you share the gospel or you are preparing guys to go out and minister to people, I see their hunger for God is just magnified. The way they worship is incredible. They have a greater passion for God. You know why? Because when Jesus is all you have, you realize that Jesus is all you need. And too often what happens to us, we get distracted. Things of the world, comforts of this world. I had somebody send me a text today and she said, you know, I, I've known this family for a while, and she said, uh, we have a son, and he plays travel soccer, and all their games have been moved to Sunday, and uh, we don't think he should go to church, but I'd like to hear your opinion. We don't think he should miss uh, church for soccer, but we'd like to hear your opinion. Gee, I wonder what my opinion would be about that. And I remember, I remember in, I remember in uh, San Jose, there was a kid that was in our youth group that was so hungry for God and being used mightily by the Lord, got involved with our worship team, and God was just, he was going on missions trips. And then all of a sudden, travel hockey came along, and his dad came and told me, for the next six months, my son won't be at church because he plays travel hockey, and that's his passion. I said, therein lies the problem, because if that's his passion, his passion needs to be Jesus. And I'm not trying to be legalistic. But I remember one year they moved a, the foot, Pop Warner football from Saturdays to Sundays. And my boys, you know, were all very good athletes. And one of them was a quarterback. And they, they you know, they were, so I, I said, well, your guys aren't playing. And again, these are teachable moments for our kids. It's not saying football is bad, but God's better. And he's more important. Amen. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And here's what happens. We become so comfortable that we'll allow anything else to, to take the place of the Lord. You shall have no other gods before me and no graven image. And graven images can be the sports that we chase after. It can be the hobby that we're pursuing. It can be the career that, look, you should be the best worker at, at work, but you never should put your job above your relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? And that sadly is that picture. Let's stay where it's comfortable. Look, we've got everything we need. We don't have to be desperate for God anymore. Look at the cattle. They've multiplied greatly. It's so green and lush out here in this land. There's still giants to fight over there. We fought enough. Let's settle for less than God's highest. Verse 10. Now in the days of Saul, they made war with the Hagarites, who fell by their hand, and they dwelt in their tents throughout the entire area of Gilead. Who in the world are the Hagarites? Well, let me ask you a question. Or Hagarites, okay? Who... Abraham was married to Sarah, and God came and gave him a promise that his wife in her 90s would give birth to a son, and that they would be multiplied, and their number would be as the stars in the sky or the sands on the seashore, and some time had gone by, and that son had not been born yet. So Sarah came up with an idea. How about you sleep with my my Egyptian maid? And Abraham says, okay. And her name was Hagar. And guess what? Through the Hagarites, do you know that Ishmael and all their descendants have been enemies of Israel and all their descendants from that day until now? Has not changed. I shared this with you. When you go to Israel, there's an there's a excursion called Abraham saying you go out into a tent and they feed you and this guy comes up pretending to be Abraham and then he says, anybody have questions for me? And I just said, dude, Hagar, what were you thinking? <laughs> he said, oy vey. I said, amen to that. You know? But the point is that because of his sinful choice, it brought division 
And it brought, so here we are, fast forward all this time, and they're fighting the Hagarites. They're fighting descendants of Hagar that would have never even existed had Abraham just obeyed God. Amen? So again, compromise is the enemy of calling. And the enemy wants us to compromise. Now he's going to give the other tribes here that are in that land. Verses 11 through 17, we see the family of Gad. So the Gadites, again, they're one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they have chosen, along with the Reubenites, to settle outside the land of promise. So these descendants of Gad, and what's interesting is right after we see the names of the descendants of Gad, you can read those later. Notice what it says here in verse 18 to 22. The sons of Reuben the Gabites and half the tribe of Manasseh had 44,760 valiant men. Do you think they might have been helpful in the battle against the giants in the land? Do you think they could have been used mightily? So they've got a mighty, they've got a mighty army and they decide with their mighty army to just camp outside. And just to wait there. But watch what happens when you settle for less than God's highest. It said, uh, who are able to bear the shield and the sword, to shoot with the bow, and skillful in war who went to war. They went to war against the Hagarites, Hagarites, Jator, Naphish, and Nodab. And they were helped against them, and the Hagarites were delivered into their hand, and all who were with them, for they cried out to God in the battle. So here they were comfortable. So what does God do to get their attention? He sends a, 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 an army against them so they will be reminded of their desperate need for God. I've had people tell me in the past, you know, the only time I really pray is when I'm going through a difficult time. And I've been going through a lot of difficult times lately. And I said, that's because the Lord misses you. <laughs> and here they are settling outside the land thinking, look at all the land filled with you know, it's, it's, there's milk and honey on that side, but boy, it's green out here. And boy, we got a lot of cattle out here. And what happened is they thought they could just lay there and be fat, dumb, and happy for the rest of their lives. And what does God do? He brings an enemy against them. And notice that they had to cry out to God. Even though they had what was seen as a mighty army, no doubt this was a great battle and it brought them to their knees and caused them to cry out to the Lord again. Sometimes that's what it takes in our lives. Here's my prayer for all of us. We, want, we wouldn't wait until we're in a place of complete and total desperation to look up. Maybe we look up long before we get there. Amen? And that's what we see here, sadly, with the Reubenites. It said he heeded their prayer because they put their trust in him. Isn't it good to know that even if you settle for less than God's highest, and even if you put your faith in everything else, that in a time of desperation, when you cry out to the Lord and you show true repentance, that God is still gracious enough to pour out his blessing upon That's our God. Amen? We are to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. And notice how forgiving he is, even to these tribes who had chose to settle outside the land of promise. Know what it says there? So he did their prayer, but it says, then they took away their livestock, 50,000 of their camels, 250,000 of their sheep, 2,000 of their donkeys, and also 100,000 of their men, for many fell dead because the war was God's, and they dwelt in their place until the captivity. Note again, it's never too late to cry out. God, rem God remembers their God. They cry out for deliverance. Almighty God loves us enough again, to do what is necessary to bring us back to him. And this describes the war of, uh, wars of judgment. God called upon Israel to bring the Canaanites when they came to the promised land. Remember that when God, God told them they were going to go into the land of Canaan, and people struggle with this, and they only struggle with this if you don't read the whole Bible. But it's hard to see when God's people come in and wipe out a people completely. We had a guy here, a guy used to go to church here, his name's Bob, and he's in heaven now. And he's not worried about this anymore. But when we would go through texts like this, sometimes he'd get mad and say, I'm mad at God. I don't think that's right. God wiped out all those people. That's not fair. I said, well, you know, one of them was the Amalekites. Said, you know, the Amalekites were, God gave them 300 years to repent and they were picking off the, the invalids and the children and the weak when they were wandering through the wilderness and kill them. And God said he had seen what they were doing. And because he saw what they were doing, because he saw what they were doing in the land, he said, I am going to bring judgment upon you. 
And he gave them 300 years to repent, and then he brought judgment. Well, the Canaanites were worshiping idols. They were worshiping false gods. They wanted nothing to do with the true and living God. God had given them opportunity after opportunity to repent, but they would not. So now God says, that is the land that belongs to my children. You are going to go into the land, and I am going to give you victory. And so now they've gone into the land, and we see that God rises up and gives them victory in the land. Look at verse 23 and 24. Here's the other tribe, Manasseh. So Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh that settle on the east side, outside of the land of promise. So the children of the half tribe of Manasseh dwelt in their land. Their numbers increased from Bashan to Baal, Hermon, that is to Sinar to Mount Hermon. These were the heads of their father's houses, Ephor, Ishi, Eliel, Azarel, Jeremiah, Hodaviah, uh, Jahabel. They were mighty men of valor, famous men, and heads of their father's houses. So these original settlers of the Easter tribe, again, they were bold men, And there were men that had a level of love for the Lord, but they were also men who were willing to compromise. So the truth is that, do we ever see people that are being used mildly by God, that are incredibly gifted by God, also compromise? Do we see that? Amen? Sometimes you'll say, why would, I thought that person was so godly. Look how gifted they are. Look how mightily God's using them. And then you find out they've done something super treacherous. See, the reality is that we need to take heed lest we fall. That none of us is above falling for the trap of the enemy. Amen? Especially if we cease to be humble and broken and desperate for the Lord. Their desire to compromise and settle east of the Jordan River was a sign, sadly, of things to come. Look at verse 25 and 26. And they were unfaithful to the God of their fathers, and they played the harlot after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, that is Tegel-Pilisar, king of Assyria. He carried the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh into captivity. He took them to Hala, Haber, Hara, and the river of Gozan to this day. So they decided to compromise and settle outside the land of promise was contrary to what God had commanded. Then it looked like they were really blessed for a time. And they decided, we don't need to fight any more battles. Then they had to fight another battle because another enemy came. And they cried out to the Lord and they trusted him. And then God delivered them. But some more time went by and that compromise sadly continued. And eventually what happened is God raised up because of their faithlessness. It says right there in that verse, it was back in verse Uh, 25, they were unfaithful to the God of their fathers. See, here's what happens. If I compromise as a dad, I'm more than likely going to raise compromising kids. If I tell my kids that football is more important than God, then they're going to be raised thinking football is more important than God. Amen? And then their kids may not even know who God is. And then the kids after that, right? And so here's what happens. We need to be faithful. We need to be, you know, preparing that quiver those, those kids were shooting into the next generation to be faithful to God. And sadly, what happened? Because they compromised and camped outside the land of promise. And even though in a minute of desperation, they cried out to God and God brought them victory, that continued compromise went down to the next generations. And eventually, what did God do? He carried them off into captivity. Hey, that land, they were all laying down in green pasture. You know, all that place where all the cattle was feeding, not anymore. They're all taken away and they were taken captive because they compromise their faith. So point number one, may we not miss out on God's highest. Compromise the enemy of calling. May we not settle for less than God's highest. Not just stay where it's easy and comfortable and free of conflict. It's easier to avoid the battle. So temporary comfort often keeps us from God's highest. And even in compromise, their lives were not free of conflict. So you don't, if you compromise, it doesn't mean that all the trials are going to go away. That all the difficulties are going to go away. I hadn't planned on sharing this, but I will. Um, when I first planted the church in Santa Cruz in 2000, in 2001, and I don't see the devil under every rock, and I'm not a guy that's, uh, you know, always seeing things that, but here's what happened in 2001. We just planted the church, Santa Cruz, when people find out you're planting a church in Santa Cruz, they call you and want to check your temperature to make sure you're okay. Because Santa Cruz is the tofu tie-dye new age lesbian capital of the United States. It's where the, it's where the headquarters for the church of Satan is, and, but it's where I grew up. And so we go there to plant a church, and we had been there about nine months. And one night, my wife is sleeping in 
uh, my boy's room, my son Mark, the one that's now in heaven, he was a little boy and had a high fever. So she was giving him baths throughout the night and keeping an eye on him and giving him Tylenol. And I was sleeping in the master bedroom. And in the middle of the night, felt an earthquake. Well, I live in California. We've all felt those. And there's an earthquake. So what do you do? You get up and you run out the door. You find your kids. You bring them in the doorway. I mean, that's what we're all taught, right? Well, as soon as I opened the door, the earthquake was gone. I thought, well, that was a quick earthquake. And I turned the TV on. No mention of an earthquake. All right, I go back to sleep. I'm not laying down 10 minutes, and now the earthquake's getting out of control. And the blades are hitting the roof of my ceiling fan. And it's shaking like crazy. And I open the door. And as soon as I open the door, the earthquake's gone. And I'm like, am I... Did I eat a, a chili dog? Tonight? What happened, you know? Why, why is this happening? And I was just kind of like, okay. And so I went, and I turned the TV on. There's no, and I go check on my kids. Everybody's fine. So I go back to bed, and this is what I heard. And I'm not saying I heard it audibly, but it was as clear as anything I've ever heard, and it brought some heaviness. I felt a heavy presence, and here's what I heard. Quit teaching the Bible, and I'll leave your family alone. So my, I talked to my wife. I sat down with the elders of our church. And do you know that people have brought that back up when my son marked that? They said, well, maybe if you'd stop teaching the Bible, your son would still be here. Here's the reality. We're going to obey God no matter what the enemy wants to dish out. Can I get an amen to that? And we cannot let the enemy win. And we cannot allow ourselves to compromise because we think if I will compromise, I'll face less static. In 1 Peter, right? We've seen that. The, 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 word, the word suffering is 11 times in 1 Peter. It's only 41 times in the New Testament. They were suffering. They were being you know, fed to lions. They were being attacked. They were being imprisoned. And his exhortation was, stay faithful. Don't let the enemy win. Guys, we, you know what? The battle belongs to the Lord and our God is greater and you plus God is a majority and we want to honor God no matter what the consequences and here's the reality. You know what? I wouldn't do anything different and I know my son's in heaven and I know I'm going to see him again and if I get, you know, something happens to me tomorrow because I'm preaching for the God, I would rather stand before Almighty God having obeyed him than having compromised. Amen? Amen? And again, I don't, I don't share that a lot because sometimes people think, is this guy crazy? And I haven't had anything else like that ever happen again. Mark, Mark lived in Santa Cruz. He knows. It's the land of fruits and nuts. It's a, it's a, it's a breakfast cereal. You take all the fruits and nuts, all your list of flakes. I mean, that's what it is. That's Santa Cruz. And God had us there for a reason. And you know that God blessed that church and we planted more churches out of that church and churches are still there today and people have been saved and God's been glorified. And guys, I, I would hate to know what it would have been like if I had just given up. When Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh found out, they compromised. They were carried away into captivity. They missed out on the land of promise and all that God had for them. Chapter 6. Now, the sons of Levi. We are all equally gifted. Sometimes we want to make certain gifts more important than others. And some are certainly more visible than others. But all gifts are equally important. And I truly believe that... If you're faithful to your gift, even though it's something people don't see, I think often those are the people whose reward in heaven is going to be the greatest. We had, a, we had a group of women in our church in Santa Cruz that had a 24-hour prayer chain that when I was up there two weeks ago, they said, oh, by the way, that still hasn't been broken. And they just pray around the clock. And they would be in the prayer room while we were having church. And people would often say, why is your church exploding? Well, let me show you the prayer room. And you know, people don't know these women's names. They're older. They're, most of them were older ladies, some of whom was, who were widowed, their husbands. And they just said, we want to pray. And I just, I, I, I always tell them, I'm going to be, I'm going to be like 500 miles in line behind you when we get, when we get to heaven, when God's handing out blessings. Amen. And so we just need to be faithful with the gifts God's given us. And so he's going to talk about the Levites here. And he says, the sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Now, why is this significant? We're going to see, and we saw it if you were here when we were back in Leviticus, that each of them, each of these parts of the family, the tribe of, of Levi, had different gifts and different callings. Now, these three tribes, their, their callings all had to do with the tabernacle. Now, if you will remember that the children of Israel, when they wandered through the wilderness, there was a tabernacle that God used and it was, and, and again, uh, I don't have time to go through it, but in Numbers, 
when you look down and God gives us, it tells us how they, all the, all the uh, different tribes camped. And it says, you know, there's a pole in the north center of the pole and you read it and you go, you get a headache and you go, why is this in the Bible? And, uh, and these many tribes camped in this direction, perpendicular to the tavern. And then these many tribes camped this way. And then these many tribes camped this way. And you know what's awesome? When, you, when God looked down from heaven and he looked at the tribes and camped in the children of, of the, in the wilderness, they saw the cross. And at the center of the cross was the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle was the altar, you know, the altar of incense and, the, you know, the, each of the implements for, for worship and for sacrifice. But also what was there at the, uh, uh, hovering above it was a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day. And so here's what they would do. And it was there with the, where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where the sacrifices were made. It made them always minded of the Lord. And so here's what happened. Every morning they would wake up and they would look up. And if the pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud moved, everybody broke down camp, got up and moved and followed till, till the presence of God stopped. And when the presence of God stopped, they rebuilt the tabernacle right under the presence of God. See, here's our problem. We want God to move to where we are. Hey, God, we're going this way. Come on, catch up. No, we don't tell God where to go. We find out where God's moving and we go there. Amen? And you know what? It's a great, we should get up every morning and look up. Okay, Lord, where, where do you want me today? How do you want to use me today? Well, as they moved, there's these three different, they could have been so upset because see, while all Levites, while all priests were Levites, not all Levites were priests. So some of the Levites, a lot of times people think, oh, the, Levi the Levites are all priests. No, just those through the lineage of Aaron were priests. Every other lineage, they were not priests. But what did they do? They served in practical ways. They're setting up the chairs. And we're going to see that as we go through the text here. Again, instead of reading through all of it, it's going to give all their names of Amram. It says from the tribe of the children of Amram. So, so the sons of Kohath were Amram, Ezar, Hebron, Uzael, the children of Amran were Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. So we know that the Kohathites, that only through the Kohathite line could a high priest come. But not all the Kohathites were priests. They had to come through the line of Aaron and Moses and Miriam. And the sons of Aaron were Nadab and Abihu. Now, how many guys remember those guys? What kind of guys were those guys? Who remembers? God smoked them. That's how, that's what kind of guys they were. They, these, and notice the Bible doesn't hide the, the frailties of its heroes, right? These guys were in the line of priests, but they were ungodly. They were unfaithful. And these sons of, again, sons of Levi were descendants of Levi. They were descendants of the right tribe to be priests. But sadly, because of their choices, again, God had struck them down. But as you continue to read on through the tribes, it talks about Uzai beginning Zariah, and you go all through that list, you get to verse 10. It says, it was he who ministered as priest in the temple that Solomon built. Azariah ministered as priest in the temple that Solomon had built. So in the tabernacle, while they were wandering through the wilderness, and then once they settled in Jerusalem, it was the same people that God had called through the tabernacle that served in the temple. So the sons of Levites, again, are all Levites, but each family's line had a different calling. Now, it tells us, uh, if you go down to verse 15, it says, Jehazadok went into captivity with the Lord, carried Judah and Jerusalem into captivity by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So here we see, again, that uh, when the Lord carried Judah and Jerusalem into captivity by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, I want you to notice that. I'm only pointing out that verse because you need to understand that while they were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, it was God who did it. Do you see what it says in that verse? It was God that carried them away. See, there can be no judgment come our way unless it gets through God's hand first. And God will use even the ungodly to bring about godly judgment. And that's what he did with the children of Israel because they had started worshiping false idols. If you were here for first and second Kings, you saw it. Evil king after evil king, ungodly worship, and God allowed them to be taken captive. Now he talks about these three tribes again. And again, when you go into Leviticus, you can see all their duties, but I'll just tell you what they were. So the Kohathites 
had charge of the objects and furnishings associated with the sanctuary of the, of the temple and the tabernacle. So when they were moving through the wilderness and they went out and they looked up and they saw that the cloud had moved, the Kohathites would jump into action. What would they do? They'd go grab the ark. They would cover it so it couldn't be seen and they'd carry it by the poles as they were commanded. The, all, you know, the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the golden altar, you know, the bronze altar. Uh, they would take all of the bronze laver and they would take all of that, cover it and move it. And that was their focus. We're in charge of moving the furnishings. And that's what they did. Then the Gershonites, we know this from Leviticus, were in charge of the curtains, the ropes, and the coverings of the tabernacle. Now, does that sound like a fancy calling to have? So we carry the ropes and the curtains and the coverings of the tabernacle. That's our job. We're carrying around, you know, big, huge, uh, you know, quilts, if you will, big, huge coverings. And that's our job. So the, all the Furnishings are taken, they're covered up, they're moved. Then the ones behind them are taking everything that forms a tabernacle and they're carrying them behind them. The Mamarites maintained and carried from place to place the pillars, the bases, the frames, the pegs, and the cords that created the structure of the tent. They're carrying the tent poles, they're carrying the pillars. And here's what would happen because each one of these groups was being faithful to do what they were called to do. And they weren't complaining because, well, I'd rather carry the ropes. You know, I, re- I wish I could carry the ark, being close to the... Pre- well, I wish I could... They were all just being faithful to do what they were called to do. And of course, I would love to have video of it, but I have an idea that when the clouds stopped, these guys went into action, and that tabernacle was up pretty quickly and done perfectly. Amen? And see, here's the blessing, is that each of them are uniquely called by God. And you know, instead of complaining and wanting somebody else's calling... We don't need two Billy Grahams and none of you. We need one Billy Graham and one of you. Amen? We're all called by God. We're all uniquely gifted by God. God wants to use all of us where we are. You have gifts I don't have. You minister to me. I may have some gifts you don't have, and I get to minister to you. But that's the body of Christ. We minister to each other. Amen? And there's people you can minister to that I can't. And there may be some people I can minister to that you can't. But I love this picture. Here these Levites are who are just being faithful to do the simple things that the Lord has called them to do. Now, no line is free of turmoil. Because in verse 22 there, look at one of the names that's there. The sons of Kohath were Aminadab, his son Korah. Who remembers who Korah was? Anybody remember? You already, you already know by the way I asked you. It's not good, right? What did Korah do? Let a revolt against Moses. When got 250 other Levites to band against him to try to overthrow Moses. Like, you know, we've been following you. How's that working out? We're just out in the wilderness. We ain't got no leeks and onions anymore. And they're just moaning and complaining and whining. By the way, Moses, you know, I'm gonna, I got a few people I want to, I'm hugging the Lord and Mark first, okay? But I'm gonna look up Moses and just hug that brother and go, God bless you, bro. You pastored a church of 3 million whiners for 40 years. God bless you, bro. I mean, you said, part of the Red Sea, they still complained. Heard the voice of God from Mount Sinai, still complained. And here's Korah, who's related to him, comes alongside and wants to overthrow Moses. And what happened? The 250 conspirators came against him, and they all thought, we're going to show him. It's in Numbers 16, verses 1 through 40. You can look it up later. And what did God do? He sent fire from heaven to consume all 250 of them that were standing there. I don't think anybody else complained about Moses being in charge after that. I think the note was taken, amen? 250, 250 against one, and Moses is standing there. You plus God is a majority, amen? Fire comes to the sky, whoa. Don't mess with Moses, bro. <laughs> that, that's God's man right there. Let's not mess with him anymore, Amen? So we, we see they don't hide the frailties in here. You know, this genealogy could have just skipped over Korah. No, Korah, not so much. Let's skip that guy. No, he's in there. Because you know what? There are people, again, even amongst those being used mildly by God, who may choose to rebel against God. Now we get to verse 31. I love this because here we're going to see, first, it really starts in verse 28. In verse 28, we're going to start to see the line of, that's going to lead to Samuel. Now we love Samuel, Amen. Love Samuel. It says in verse 28, 
It says, the sons of Samuel were Joel the firstborn, Abijah the second. The sons of Merari were, were Mali, Lionel his son, Shemiel his son, Uzzah his son, Shimei his son, Haggai his son. Now look what it says in verse Now these were the men whom David appointed over the service of the song in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest. So once they had been moving... And now they came to a place of rest, and this is in Jerusalem where the first you know, temple would eventually be built. There was a tabernacle there. What did he do? He appointed men from among the children of Israel whose calling was to lead people in worship. So here we have it in Scripture. And so David was given this vision, and here's what would happen. David wanted people standing in the tabernacle, in the outward tabernacle, or people even passing by to hear praises to the Lord going on in the outer courts of the temple, outer courts of the tabernacle before the temple was built. And I love this, and you know, this is, doesn't it, let me ask you a question. When you walk into church or when you walk into a place and you just hear worship song, worship music playing, doesn't it change everything? I love to have worship music played 24 hours a day in my house. Alexa, here's every, Alexa, play Christian music volume five and just leave it on all day. And there's just something about worship. It's, it's wonderful, amen? You know, God loves it and Satan hates it. That's enough to do it all the time, amen? And so I love that he appoints people, you know, through the lines of the Levites, right? Through the line, but, but Samuel, we'll find out, was not. Some people think was not of the line of the Levites because it says his, his dad, if you go back to 1 Samuel, was, from, was an Ephraimite. And the Ephraimites, again, are not of the Levite tribe. But here's the thing. If you really look in closely, it means his dad's from Ephraim. His dad was a Levite, so so was Samuel. So God allowed Samuel to be used by God. He was a, a prophet and a servant of the Lord, and God used him in a mighty and a powerful way. And the fact that David appointed these men over the service of worship shows that musical worship of, of God is important. It's worthy of attention. It should be organized. It should be done decently and in order. Worship greeted those who came into the courtyard of the tabernacle. And you know what? I think worship should greet the people that come into our houses. Amen? And when people come here on Sunday, I love that Danilo, before worship, you know, there's just Christian music playing. After the worship team stops you know, practicing, worship music's praying. As soon as we say amen, worship, worship music is praying. And guys, guess what? If you don't like worship, you're not going to like heaven. Because that's where worship is going to be nonstop. Because we're going to see the one who's worthy to be worshiped, to be praised, and to be honored. Amen? So the exhortation here. Notice it says here, go down to verse 39. It's going about the Kohathites. And then it says in verse 39, and it's brother Asaph. You ever heard of Asaph? You guys ever heard of him? It's the first mention of Asaph in the Bible. Again, he was listed uh, in 2 Kings, but that's a different man. This Asaph here is a man of wide and long-lasting influence amongst God's people. In 1 Corinthians, Chronicles 15 mentions Asaph as a fellow singer with Haman and Ethan. In chapter 16, it describes Asaph as the chief at the ceremony bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Also later in chapter 16, it says that David delivered a psalm to Asaph, his brethren, at the ceremony, and David wrote the psalm, and Asaph and his brethren performed it. So David wrote a psalm, and Asaph got people up, and they worshiped the Lord. It says that Asaph, in, in 1637 of First Chronicles, was left with the responsibility to daily minister before the Ark of the Covenant when it was brought into Jerusalem in David's time. It says in First Chronicles 25 that Asaph... Jephthah and Ermin served in music under the authority of King David. In 2 Chronicles, it indicates the influence of Asaph lasted far beyond his death, in that future worship leaders and magicians were known as sons of Asaph, even in the days of Ezra. And we know that 12 of the Psalms are, at, are attributed to Asaph. So this was a man used mightily by God. And what was his calling? To bring people into a place of worship. That's a wonderful calling. Amen. And it's a blessing, and it's a get-to, and it's an absolute joy that we'd be able to bring people into the presence of Almighty God. Verses 49 to 53 there, we'll read that. Here it talks about the family of Aaron. Now, Aaron and his sons offered sacrifices on the altar, a burnt offering on the altar of incense, on all the work in the most holy place, to make atonement for Israel according to all that Moses, the servant of God, had commanded." We know that in the, and we're not going to get through all this. We know that 
probably finish verse, chapter 6. We know that Aaron was the high priest, and it was only the high priest who could go to the, into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, what people refer to now as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. Why is that? Because there's only one who could make sacrifice for us. It's a picture of Jesus. Amen? He is our great high priest. Amen? We know that the ark had three things in it, all pointing to Jesus. It had a jar of manna because he's the bread of life. It had Aaron's rod that was budding because he is the great high priest. And then it had the Ten Commandments because Jesus is the word. Amen? And above it was the mercy seat. And then the angels on each side and the blood, they would sprinkle the blood in the middle. Again, when Jesus rose from the dead, they came into the tomb. What did they see? Angels on each side, the blood stained closed in the middle because the ark is not only a picture of the cross, it's a picture of the resurrection of our Savior. Amen? And only one could enter in. But throughout scripture, we see other people who try to enter in. And what happens to them? They die. Do you remember the one time they're carrying the ark on a cart, which they weren't supposed to, only supposed to carry it by poles. It starts to fall, and one of the, one of the Levites reaches out and touches it. What happens to him? Dies. Touch not the glory. Amen? It's all about Jesus. We're all, it's all pointing to the Lord. All those sacrifices that were made for thousands of years were all pointing to the one who was coming, and they've all been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And that's why we're not dragging you know, lambs in here on Sunday. Amen? We're not making sacrifices anymore. We don't have to because it is finished. It's been paid in full and praise God. So while all priests were Levites, not all Levites were priests and only those descended from Aaron were allowed to make that atonement. Then it talks about Levitical cities and we'll finish with this. So Levitical cities from 54 all the way to verse 81. Now what's interesting about the Levites, they didn't have a specific place where they ruled and they were spread out throughout the, other, throughout the 12 tribes. And the reason that they were was they were to be used to bless and minister to people in all the different tribes because they were the ones who were called to serve, again, in, the, in, in sacrifice and worship, and they were called the ones to, to do the practical things so that sacrifice and worship could take place. Now, one of the things that we saw in, Le, in Leviticus and other places, that there were six cities of all these cities that are listed, uh, the, the number of cities, I'm losing it here, um, so there's, there's a 54, I think it is. There's cities uh, throughout, uh, so forgive me on that part. But six of the cities were called cities of refuge. And if you were here way back in Numbers and other places, and in the cities of refuge, there were six of them. Three of them were on the east side, where Manasseh and Reuben and Gad were. And three of them were in the area of, on the other side of the Jordan. Now, what was the city of refuge about? It was a place of safety for a manslayer from the family's avenger of blood, one who carried out vengeance when a family member was unlawfully killed or murdered. So in those days, what would happen is, let's say you're out with your buddy, you're chopping wood. The axe, and this is what the, the example that's used in scripture, the axe handle, the uh, head of the axe falls off, flies over and harms your friend and he dies. And nobody's there to witness it. And, and, and so here's what happens. His uh, avenger of blood in his family now has the right to kill you. No questions asked. That's how it worked. Now, what could they do for safety? They could run to one of these cities of refuge and they were placed specifically geographically so that somebody could get there fairly quickly because it doesn't help if you can't get there. <laughs> and they didn't put mountains in between them. So you would run into the city of refuge and here's what happened. You would share what happened and they would allow you to remain there and you would remain safe there, but you could not leave. If you left the city of refuge, the, the, it's back on your head. And that avenger of blood can strike you down in the street anywhere you go. Now, guess when the only time you could finally leave and the avenger of blood could no longer touch you? When the high priest died. Whenever the high priest died, anybody living in a city of refuge who had a blood avenger over their head would be forgiven and they could walk free. Now, if that doesn't look like Jesus, you're not paying attention. Because we're all sinners and we're all guilty. And we could all be slain and we would deserve it. And you know what? You know what set us free from it? The death of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, upon the cross of Calvary. Does the Bible rock or what? 
Such good stuff. That's in a genealogy, guys. Amen? I'll just skip over that bunch of names I can't pronounce anyway. Let's just go. Hey, nothing less than a whole Bible makes a whole Christian. Amen? I didn't even get to chapter 7 and 8. Well, that's the good thing about teaching verse by verse. We can always pick up next week. Amen? I'll, I'll, we'll go through, Lord willing, 7, 8, 9, and 10 next week. 9 and 10 need to be done together. I, I encourage you to read ahead. And so what are we seeing? We, may we not miss out on God's highest compromise the enemy of calling. We don't want to settle outside of God's highest. We don't want to be satisfied with saved souls and wasted lives. We don't want to be outside of that place of God's blessing and promise. We want to be in the center of his will. We don't want to settle with an, an easier life and what has the least amount of conflict. We want to go where the Lord wants us. And then we're all uniquely gifted. Again, we saw each of the Gershon and Merari and the Kohathites, each of them were being faithful to use the gifts God had given them. And through the Kohathites, we also saw that they were to lead people in worship. And each one of them used their gifts. What did it do? It allowed the glory of God to move forward. It allowed the presence of God to move forward. It allowed other people to be ministered to. And I want to encourage you, whatever you're called to do, do it with all you have. Do it for Jesus. If we're mopping the floors for Jesus, let's make the best mop floors for Jesus ever. If we're digging ditches for Jesus, let's dig ditches for Jesus ever. The Bible says if you give a cup of cold water in my name, the God will bless you. Amen? I want to encourage us. Let's be faithful to what God has called to do, and let's do it with all our hearts. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. You are indeed a great and an awesome God. We thank you for your word that it's living and breathing. We thank you, Lord, for the examples we've seen tonight in a genealogy and how it so clearly applies to our lives. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to the calling you've placed upon our lives, to recognize without you we can do nothing, not to be satisfied with compromise, not to be satisfied with saved souls and wasted lives. Lord, not to take the talent you've given us and bury it in the sand and then give it back to you when you return. But may we take the gifts you've given us and use them for your kingdom and for your glory. Lord, we can't wait to see you face to face. And I pray that when you come back for us or when we draw our last breath, you will find us having been faithful to the end, to the calling you placed upon our lives. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said...